felt strongly that we should be here, that I should be here to bring the word. Now, you may have a different opinion. I don't know at the end of the sermon, and you're free to share that in a graceful and loving way, I suppose. Uh, but I'm excited. I hope you're excited today as we open up God's word. Let's pray as we open it up in just a moment. God, we thank you that you are holy and you are loving. And as we are here today, as we've prayed already, we pray that we'd encounter your holiness and your love together, working together. We pray that your Holy Spirit would impact us, that we would in fact be changed by opening up your word and by responding to it, that it wouldn't be just an academic exercise, but that it would be life-changing and life-giving. God, be with us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to focus our efforts on two texts with a bonus text today. So the first one, if you're going to follow along, is 1 Peter 2, uh, 22 through 25, and we'll get there in a moment. But we're, we're in this series where we've been talking about some truths about Jesus, and, and it's a little bit of a response, but in a lot of ways it's more of just looking at some of the foundational elements of our faith concerning Jesus. But, but the spark of this all was a survey that was done by the Barna Organization in 2015 that, that talked about some of the beliefs of Americans in general, not just Christians, but just Americans in general when it comes to Jesus. And so we've talked about a few of those, uh, the fact that most people believe that Jesus really existed. And we talked about that. There's good reason to believe that, in fact, he did. Uh, historically speaking, it works out pretty well, uh, and it's hard to make the historical case otherwise. We talked about the fact that Jesus claimed to be God, that the, the gospel writers themselves recognize this, and you can see this in the New Testament. We've just looked at thumbnail sketches. We're, we're not building this exhaustive case. There, I've tried to point you to resources if you want more on these things, because we don't have time to make an exhaustive case. You should be thankful for that. But we talked about Jesus is God. Jesus really existed. Jesus claimed to be God. And, and that matters. And that's where we're going still, that Jesus made this claim. It appears to be the case that, that Scripture supports that claim and that, that the signs that Jesus performed and what Jesus did uphold that claim as well. And now this week, we want to talk about the, the fact that Jesus never sinned. And this is where we start to hit this sort of cultural point of erosion, and it even is happening in the church in places, where people want to believe uh, that Jesus maybe is so like us that he probably just sinned as well. He probably did some wrong in his life. How could he not? And we live in this culture uh, that... that focuses a lot of effort on things like tolerance, which is good in certain areas and bad in other areas, and, and focus its effort very much on a not judging others, which again can have positive and negative components. But part of that is that we've, we, we don't want to change, is what stands behind that quite often. Don't judge me. We live in that culture because you're telling me there's something wrong with me and you don't have that right. That's the world we live in. So we start to unknowingly sometimes translate that onto Jesus. That perhaps Jesus is judging me by being perfect, which actually Jesus has the right to do that, but that maybe it'll just make it easier to stomach if I can just assume that Jesus probably was just as human as I was in many ways. Right? It pulls him down to earth so much for us. It, it makes him seem more approachable even, if you want to look at it in positive terms. And so we start to see that, that, that about 50% of those who were interviewed either thought Jesus probably sinned or weren't sure, and the other 50%, again, this is just the American public, said, no, Jesus was sinless. Well, that's a pretty big disparity then, if you've got a split like that. 
And we can ask the question, what does Scripture tell us? And then, of course, you can ask further, then what does Scripture show us, too, about Jesus? But before we get there, we've been hanging this whole sermon series on 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, who, who, a worker who is not approved and who correctly, or not ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. And, and what we've said about that and where we've kind of, the trajectory of where we've gone is that your life is a testimony, whether you want to recognize it or not, about the work of God in your life. And we need to live right with God, be in right relationship. And when we draw close to God, we're going to be changed by that contact. We'll be made more like Christ in that interaction with God when we draw close to the one who is holy, and we're going to respond to our world in godly ways because our character is being changed. And when we we run into the real world situations, we're going to respond differently because we've been touched by God himself because we've been changed from the inside out, as we've been saying this morning. But in between all of that, moving towards God and, being, and living right with God and, and the change that happens, we could ask, how do we even get to establishing that godly behavior? How, does that care, how do we get to that point? In the midst of all that, I'm not going to give you a nice, clean, three-point response or anything like that. What we've really been doing is talking about our response to God almost in one simple way these last couple of weeks. And so, really, we're talking about our response. And, and today, even beyond that, we're talking about the response to what God has already done for us. There's work on our part, certainly, but God has done the work for us so that we can live right with God. And we can be changed in the process to become more like Christ. And we have a sinless Jesus who is able to do that for us. When you read scripture, you can find out a number of of things about God, of who God is. One of the predominant themes that you see is that God is good. Not just like goodness, but God is good. And I think uh, author James Sire in his book on worldviews really outlines it well that Two of the other things that you hear about God being described as are holiness and love. Not God is like, but God is. And God's goodness is really expressed in those two ways, in holiness and in love. I've been reading the first five books of the New Test- or Old Testament in my own devotional reading, and you cannot walk away from those thinking that God is less than holy. God seems so other in a sense, but in, in a positive way, that, that God doesn't seem like he's part of his creation. He's the creator, not the created. And that's part of what holiness is. We have to understand that God's not just the highest thing that was created. God stands outside of creation. That's part of what we're saying when we say God is holy. The other thing that puts it maybe in terms that, that of how God interacts with us is, is a way that has been stated by A.W. Tozer when he writes about holiness. He says, that which is holy is healthy. That's a great way to say it. It's, it's got integrity. It's put together. It's whole. It's not broken. It's not fractured. It's not vandalized, however you want to say it. And that's what we have in God, something apart from creation, whole, complete, unfractured. God is holy. God is also love. Zillion different definitions of love you can find out there. Just take your pick, right? But God's love is best expressed in Jesus Christ in giving us his son, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. 
Thanks be to God for that, that God gave us, and it's a very personal thing. We don't have an impersonal force in God. We have a very personal God who would choose to do that, who is capable of choosing to do that, to love. And as it turns out, holiness and love work together. We often easily think of them working against one another. God is either holy or either love, but they work together, not against one another. And so we'll, we'll look at those two pieces today as we move forward. A few years ago, I was uh, putting together a playhouse. We had a playhouse to go in the backyard uh, for the kids. Uh, we were living in Colorado at the time. It, it did make the move with us. Boy, it was hard to put together the second time. But the first time, it was hard enough. You know, it's in multiple boxes. I've got all the tools there. You open up the instruction manual that doesn't look like it was written by somebody who actually ever put it together. And, and you, you know, it tells you to lay out all the pieces, and you've got six extra bags of parts. And you know how these things go. But the, the warning sign really came to me when I read, this should take two reasonably skilled people 15 hours to build. <laughs> and then, of course, you start building the thing with the tools that are there, and you're like, put the B1 bolt with the L4 you know, socket thingy, and you're like, but that's, there is no L4. It's like an L6, and that doesn't look like the picture. And it took forever. It took days to put this thing together. And I'm not that technically inept. I mean, this, this is not hard. But you feel like you're set up for failure from the beginning on these things. Two reasonably skilled people, 15 hours. I had a second reasonably skilled person to help me at the beginning too, and it still took us forever. But you feel like you're set up for failure. And that's, I think, what happens when we talk about God's holiness and being able to draw close to God, but God's holy, and it feels sometimes like we're set up for failure. When you think about that, how am I going to draw close to a holy God if we really recognize the fullness of the picture? This is a very simplistic uh, way to look at it, but we're supposed to be close to God. God gives that word, be holy as I am holy. Old Testament, New Testament, you get the same word, be holy because I am holy. And so we're supposed to be in close proximity, but the problem is sin enters the picture and we can't be close to God because sin is part of the problem. And so it functions like this moat and we're on the outside set up for failure with a raft with a whole lot of holes in it. We can't get across on our own. And this image will come into play, I believe, next week, so keep this in mind. But this spatially just picks out for us the problem. The effects of sin are that we can't be close to God. And then if you start to tease those out a little bit further, and, and you can see this evidenced very clearly in the camp, in the Old Testament, not only did sin alienate the people from God's presence, but it alienated them from one another and from the community. You've got to separate yourself out. That's what sin does to us. It has this ripple effect out. We're broken by this and alienated from God. God is holy. We have to understand that. Yet God gives us a holy sacrifice in Jesus Christ so that we can somehow make it close to God again. God Put, gives us really what we need so we can reestablish the relationship. So let's go to 1 Peter 2, 22 through 25. Peter quotes here for us Isaiah 53, which if you start to look at Isaiah 53 uh, and, and do a little working with it, Jesus quotes it, Jesus references it. It's referenced and quoted an awful lot in the New Testament. It's very key to our understanding of what the work of Christ was doing. And so starting at verse 22 of chapter 2, it's, it's quoting Isaiah 53. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You have this prophecy cited, the prophecy that Peter is citing for us is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. This one who had no sin. There was no deceit. He wasn't lying about who he was or anything that he did. And he comes and he takes our place as a sacrifice. It seems unjust, but actually it it is justice being served in the end to take our place when we deserve that. That's what Peter's getting at. Jesus becomes this unblemished, perfect sacrifice. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, which we'll turn to in a moment, talks about this in, in more detail. That, that the sacrificial system you had in the Old Testament that was there to atone for sin was merely a shadow of what was to come in Jesus. Here you have now not an every day, every year sacrifice that needs to go on of a different kind, but you have life for life. You have the right kind and the once for all sacrifice for you and I so that we actually can have entrance into the presence of the one who is holy and be close to God again and fix that which was broken. In the Old Testament, you have two sort of broad categories of offerings that were given. Uh, one is the peace or the fellowship offering. And both of these are responses to a holy God, to a God who's loving as well. With the peace or fellowship offering, typically a burnt offering, although it was also recognized in the three feasts that were prescribed every year. They're harvest moments. It was a burnt offering, typically, though it was offered. Nothing was left at the end. We're giving this over. It's fully given. We understand that God is the one who gives the bounty of the land, and we're going to give back to God a portion of that, recognizing that we are stewards of what God freely gives, just like we did with our offering in worship today. It's the same concept that's going on there. We are merely stewards. God is the giver in the first place. And we recognize that by a peace or a fellowship offering. Another broad type of category that you have is the guilt offering that's given within the Old Testament. It's a response to the fact that we're alienated from God by our wrongdoing, which is sin, by doing things that are unholy, unrighteous. And the intent is restoration or reconciliation of a relationship that's broken to atone, really, to make one what's broken. Either way, it's a response to God's provision. And lest we get lost on the second one, the guilt offering, because it could be easy to think, well, wait, I did the sin, and now I have to bring something before God to repair that sin. Doesn't that seem like a lot of my work? God gave the system in the first place. God says, I don't want you to be alienated, so I'm going to make a way for you to be able to come back to me. Because things are going wrong and things will go wrong because sin is in the world. I want to make it right. And we had a shadow of that in the Old Testament. And with Jesus, it's fixed once for all. We're responding to God's provision and God's work. That's what they were doing in the Old Testament. Peter then brings up in in verse 225, he says the same thing was going on with you. You were like sheep going astray, quoting Isaiah 53 again, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, we were outside the bounds of God's holiness. 
alienated by sin, and God made provision for us to be holy as he is holy through his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. He provided the reconciliation that we couldn't provide ourselves. So God is holy, and we need something, that perfect sacrifice, to be made right with him. Secondly, the other passage I want to look at is Hebrews 4.15. Jesus is described as a high priest here. And again, Hebrews would go on, if you read it, it's it's a lot about the sacrificial system and how Jesus uh, fulfills what's there. But it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now, as, as we define sin here, uh, I always think of the old catechism, sin is all in thought, word, and deed, which is contrary to the will of God. It's, it's anything where we essentially, if you want to get to the root of sin, it's us turning ourselves into God. That's what we're doing. I know better than you, God. It may seem hard to say it that way, but that's what we're actually saying to God. I know better. I know better than your ways. I know better than your will and what your plan is, God. That's sin at its core. It's not just the things we do wrong. It's the the very attitude of the heart that would cause us to do that. Jesus didn't do that. He did the will of the Father. He says as much in the Gospels, but he had the ability to sin. We recognized last week that Jesus was fully God and fully human. In that being fully human, he has the ability to sin. Satan tempts him three times, and those were tough temptations. They were not easy. He was able to give in to those. Jesus prays, if this cup could be taken away from me, God, that would be great. This is going to be hard. He's tempted to walk away from God's plan. But he didn't. And so we recognize that God is holy, and he uh, wants us in his presence, but the love is what motivates him to send his son to endure all of that so we can be brought back into his presence. That's what we get through the Son, Jesus Christ, who came. Now, I had a good conversation with Stephanie uh, two days ago about um, the, the temptation component of this, and I think it's worth making a note about this. Were the temptations really the same for Jesus as for us? We live in 2017. Come on, let's be real, right? Temptation has changed throughout the years, hasn't it? Let me give you a couple of thoughts on that. Um, one, and this has to do, let's start low on, the, on things here. I remember when, when I was working on my graduate degree, we were living up in British Columbia. Um, I was distracted for a short while by a video game, right? Nothing big. It just was, it was taking a little extra time and took me away from my studies for a short while. Didn't fail anything, just was a distraction. I gave the power cord to Stephanie. I said, I need it at the end of the semester. I, I want to get this done right. Done. And I thought, I was talking to a friend two days later who didn't have a TV. He was living in a communal house where they just barely had any technology at all. I mean, they barely had running lights in the house. It was great. And, and um, I was talking to him, and I'm thinking mentally in my head, man, how amazing would it be to have no TV and no nothing? We could shut it off at our house, and we'd have no distractions. And as I'm talking to him, he's not knowing this thought. He's like, yeah, I didn't get what I was supposed to do done last night because I was distracted. And I was like, wait, what? He was distracted without any technology whatsoever. He was reading something else, playing board games, talking to people. I'm reminded it doesn't take much to get distracted. Some of you are right now. Now, thank you. But let's go on with the temptation because I was in a conversation then not too long ago with somebody who was telling me basically I should abandon the Bible because it's a 2,000-year-old document and it's outdated. We live in 2017. You know how the argument goes. Um, 
And so as we talked about this, there wasn't much chance for me to go to Word in Edgewise, but when I, when I did, I was pointing out, we talked about sin a little bit. I said, but, but are the sins, is sin really that different now? I mean, if you look at the list of vices, the seven deadly sins of the church, they've been you know, put down through the centuries, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. We just have different portals into those now, don't we? The sins are the same. Technology doesn't change that. It just changes how we access and, and uh, commit those things. I'll give you one more thought, uh, a little lighter hearted as we move on here. Um, it's about distractions again and, and that things haven't changed. We have a game around our house called Coob. It's a game where you throw, you have pieces of wood and pieces of wood on the other end and you throw pieces of wood at pieces of wood. Swedish invented game. It's actually very fun and strategic. Probably they say invented in the 1100s by Swedish middle schoolers who are out collecting firewood. You can see how this goes. Mom and dad say, go out into the woods, collect firewood. And they're thinking, how can we make this take as long as possible and stretch this out, right? I don't want to do this. Things haven't changed that much, have they? They really haven't in thousands of years. We still can commit sins the same way. We still get distracted. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he didn't sin. You can read scripture and you can see the record of the fact that he really was tempted. None of us, I don't think, have fasted for 40 days and then been offered food at that point that was really would have been stolen in this case, if you want to put it in simple terms. Jesus was tempted in every way like we were, yet he didn't give in. Thanks be to God, he didn't. And we are told that we're supposed to become Christ-like on this path of following Jesus Christ. Jesus did the will of the Father so that we could draw close to God, who then says, by the power of the Spirit, I'm going to make you like my son, Jesus Christ. That's who you're supposed to be. Thanks be to God that he did that for us. So then when we read a passage like 2 Timothy, what we've been hanging this sermon series on, do your best to stand before God as unapproved. We're not set up for failure. We're set up for success. So that when we're called to be one who's a worker, who's not ashamed, we have the Holy Spirit who can stand by us because we can be in God's presence to do the work that we're called to do so that we can correctly handle the word of truth because God's given it to us and says, I want you in my presence. Thanks be to God for all of that. John Stott, in summing this up, by the way, if you want a really detailed understanding of what Jesus did on the cross, his book, The Cross of Christ, is worth your time, although it'll take you a while to read it. But he says in that book, he says, how could a God express simultaneously his holiness in judgment and his love in pardon? Exactly what we're talking about, holiness and love working together. How could he do that? He says, only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner. That's you and me. So that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon. And that's only accomplished because a sinful Jesus wasn't sinful. He was sinless. Because a sinful Jesus has no power to save. Because Jesus was sinless, he could take our sin away for us. Take the penalty away and conquer sin, death, death, and the devil. That's the Christ we have that we follow. To round this out, Colossians 1 sums it up well. Verses 19 and 20. Here's your bonus verse. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Put it all in Jesus Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. That's you and me. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
And it all comes down to our response to that. Just as the offerings in the Old Testament are a response to a God who provides, and not only provides the good things in this life, the bounty of the land, what's in our bank accounts, but the God who provides the way out of sin when we, like sheep, turn away. That's the God that we worship. That's the God who has holiness and love working together so that Jesus becomes sin for us, even though we should take the penalty and we become the righteousness of God. We are not set up for failure. Amen. We're set up for success. And God provided the way. He said, I want you to be holy as I am holy. I want you to be in my presence. Let me give you the way to do that. And so this morning... Before we go to the table here, I want to take time to pray right now. You'll have time to pray even uh, at the table to pray and and hand things over to God. But I want to pray first and foremost to take those areas of our lives where we have not submitted. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. This is the time to do it. We'll take time. But, But there are areas of our lives where we continue to hold things back. We put up walls where we block God's work in our life. Who wants to make us holy? Who wants to give us freedom and redemption from those things that hold us back? So let's take time to pray before we go to the table. God, as we sit here this morning, our response to you should be thanksgiving first and foremost. And then to glorify your name, that what comes out of our mouth would be praise to you. You give us the ability... Not just to breathe air, but you gave us the air in the first place. You give us the ability to walk and the ground to walk on. God, thank you for those many ways that you've just given us your grace freely. And this morning as we sit here, for those of us who have never said yes to your son, who have never submitted to his authority, and who have never said, I want the life that is truly life. I don't fully get it, but I want it. God, give them the ability to take that right now and to enter into your presence. If that's you, just say yes to Jesus. And Father, for those of us that hold back certain areas, may your spirit work in us right now to say, just hand it over. It's going to be better. You'll have the life that's truly life if you just hand yourself fully to me. Father, for those work situations, for those uh, school situations, for those home situations, for those uh, extended family interactions, for our friends where there are fractures, where there's brokenness, can we hand those over to you, Father, this morning? That you would repair what's broken, that we would recognize that because you sent your son to die on the cross, nothing is irreconcilable, nothing is, uh, is beyond your redemption this morning, God. As you sit there, hand those things over to God. If you need to put your hands out, put them out and hand over those things to God that need to be redeemed and handed over that you need freedom from. God, we lift these things up to you this morning with thanksgiving in our hearts. We thank you that your presence is even with us here today. May we experience that. May it go before us as we leave that we're not left without a witness in this world. Thank you for your good news. I pray this in your name. Amen.